0: How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. (music) Hello and welcome to How Hard Can It Be Up Close and Personal with the Real People in Boston's Venture Capital Big Time. My name is Mike Triano and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. Today's episode features my conversation with Sue Graham Johnston, the president of G20 Portfolio Star 128 Technology. Sue actually came to Boston in 2017 to help run 128 a next-generation networking company that closes the gap between what your business needs and what your network does. Much of 128's management team also led Acme Packet, a Boston-based unicorn acquired by Oracle in 2013, for a little over $2 billion. Sue was actually the executive at Oracle responsible for the integration of Acme Packet and for running the resulting business. She was so well-regarded by the team that when they were ready for a president in the new business, they called her first. Between Oracle and here, Sue served as the managing director of British Oxygen Company, running the UK, Ireland, and sub-Saharan Africa region of the Lind Group. While at Oracle, she served as vice president in the communications global business unit, having joined Oracle through the acquisition of Sun Microsystems, where she held numerous leadership roles in operations, supply chain, and engineering. Sue started her career in management consulting with Bain & Company and holds a BS in mechanical engineering, an MS in manufacturing systems engineering, and an MBA, all from Stanford University, the Cornell of the West. Sue's about as polished and professional as they come, and she's risen to the top of every male engineer-dominated situation she's been dropped into her whole life. I learned over the course of our conversation where that poison bearing comes from. And all I'll say going in is that it involves the management and sharing of lesser mammals. Curious? Well, you should be. Here now is my conversation with the president of 128 Technologies, Sue Graham Johnston. Is this your first spring? It's your first winter here in the... In the U.S. in the uh, in the East Coast. <laughs> um, it's
1: my first winter in 30 years. Right. And my last snow was April 28, 1987. Wow. And that's when I moved to California.
0: Wow. You were there out there in your leg warmers, and uh, exactly. you were like, "You've had big enough." Hair,
1: big earrings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're like, "Enough of this noise. I'm, you got I'm it. heading west." Um, all right. So, uh, uh, would love to just kind of tell people your story a little bit, and let's start like way at the beginning. Where Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Wow. Yep.
0: Trump country. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very much. If you look at a, a map of Pennsylvania, yeah, uh, it is one of those like bright red counties in the middle of the state.
0: Right. Was it was it rural and like, you know?
1: Grew up on a farm? Wow. Well, semi-farm. So my dad grew up on a proper farm. We grew up on a gentleman's farm that had like cows in the backyard. I grew up with sheep and chickens and you know acres of vegetables.
0: Did you have chores? Did you have things you like yes, milking things? Like what We are... did
1: not have to milk but right. we did help my dad shear the sheep um, and we had to feed the chickens and all the ancillary pets around the house.
0: Wow. Now uh, uh, I know you have a twin um, which is unusual. I think you're the first twin on the podcast here. Um, do you have other siblings or just you two?
1: We were enough trouble.
0: Yeah no, I'm sure. Um uh, I know you guys are close and 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 uh, in some ways like related. Like, was that dynamic in play from an early age, or like, were you guys thick as thieves like right from the get go, or was there a friction part? Like, I'm always fascinated yeah. because you know. Uh, yeah,
1: you know, it's it's funny because we did the the naked interview, and Liz and I had prepared all of these twin anecdotes assuming that would somehow yeah. come up in the conversation so i would say we were probably at our naughtiest like between 12 and 16 right and that was where you know i would say well you, if you take the french tests i'll take the history tests wow and kind of divide and conquer yeah. and you know I really don't like this guy anymore. Can you break up with him for me?
0: <laughs> really? Oh, so yeah. people you dated could not tell. Yeah. Oh my God. Our
1: prom dates. We spent half the prom trying to convince our dates they were with the right twin. Did
0: you wear the same thing? No.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. People just right. have. I guess they have trouble. No.
0: I. I. Uh, I. It's very hard to for non twins to relate to that. Yep. But It's very interesting.
1: It was a very leveraged way to get through junior. No.
0: Home. I. 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 I could, I could tell. Um, all right. So, uh, where did you leave to go to school from uh, from Pennsylvania?
1: So, was in Pennsylvania until tenth grade, and then came up here. So, my sister and I both went to Andover, along with three of our cousins. So, right. we had kind of a passel of us there. Right. Um, and then, like I said, April twenty eighth rolled around my senior year, and I said, "I am in. I'm out of here. I'm I'm off to California."
0: Yeah. And you went to Stanford, right? I did. What was that like?
1: It was fantastic. You know, what was interesting for me, Mike. When I was looking at colleges. Um, You know, probably some of your audience remembers when all the eating clubs were being sued because they were still all male. And just the temperature on the campuses at most of the Ivies was pretty high around gender relations. You had a a lot of alumni who didn't want women there at all. And you could feel that palpably on the campus. And Stanford was co-ed from the day it was founded. And it actually felt entirely different from that dimension. Not to mention it's in the middle of... You know the beautiful Bay Area with the sun shining down and rolling foothills, and you know no brick buildings anywhere because you can't build them to earthquake code. Yeah, Uh, and so it was just a really different place. And I'm certain I never would have studied engineering if I'd stayed on the East Coast.
0: It's a it's a you know place with great mystique, right? I mean, I went to two Ivy League schools, and um, you know I guess there's some there too, but but something about. Stanford, I think particularly to kids who grow up on the East Coast, you know, mm-hmm. it's this sort of beckoning like um, place. And, um, you know, um, do you what do you think the magic is out there? What do you what do you think is sort of that they've really gotten right in the formula? And and the follow on will be how do you think that contrasts now that you've had more exposure to MIT and Harvard's way of looking at the world?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think having been there through really the, the rapid growth of Silicon Valley, What's interesting is, you know, my perspective on the the late eighties, early nineties is people were fascinated by the technology itself. You know, it was about building microprocessors, building computers, about the joy of creation. Yeah, and that brought this real ecosystem of creators together in a way that was really incredible. Uh, and so you had you know, these nuclei of companies that kept spinning off other ventures and then attracting academics and spinning off more ventures. Um, And that was a really exciting time. And then I think that the emphasis started to shift. So when you had the dot-com colossal boom in 2000, then bust, and now this second wave, I think what I actually moved away from the Bay Area Area in 2015, and part of that was – feeling as if there had been a shift from this joy of creating important new technologies to change the world to you know technologies to re- replace my mother and get money quickly. Yeah. And that I think what part of what I'm enjoying being in Boston is it feels like the the creative juice here is much more back to that era of you know let's create something new and exciting particularly like biotech. I mean you're saving lives, sure. you're doing brand new things. And I think Silicon Valley's drifted away from that that joy, uh, and I see that much more here.
0: That's a, that's really interesting. There was a, uh, I think it was a headline in Medium, but it was I remember seeing it. It came up in a bunch of different locations, but it was Silicon Valley is over, says Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's um, so meta. I, it is very meta. Uh, and, I and I don't even know like quartz or like who the hell I don't even know where anything comes from anymore. But but. Uh, but I, I uh, you know, I don't spend that much time out there, but I, I, I think you really put your finger on it, that there is the sense that, uh, that those nobler aspirations have been overtaken by something a little bit darker. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think the way you, you see a lot more social ill there than I saw when I, when I first moved there, a lot of homelessness. I mean, obviously, the opo- opioid crisis is kind of permeating the country. But it just, it's so stark when you know that there are so many people with so many money and I can't walk two blocks from my place in San Francisco without seeing somebody sleeping on the street.
0: Yeah. I lived out there for a year and and that was one of my most um, uh, disappointing aspects of it, you know, because it was like a golden city on a hill for me. And, uh, you know, I lived in Pacific Heights and so... You know, I, it was a beautiful neighborhood, but there was a lot of that um, yeah. there, and and it, you know, it's it's sad. And you'd think in such a place that's so like you know, you think of the like, you know, hippie that sensibility, in certainly parts of the city. Um, but even there, you know, there was a lot of just a lot of homelessness. And uh, anyway, all cities have their cross to bear, but it, it is it's noteworthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So uh, you studied engineering. I did. Um, there there couldn't have been you know was there a women in STEM problem back then or. Or, or uh, you know, what, what was what was that like? I,
1: well, I started in physics, which had even fewer women. Yeah. Uh, and then one of the things that was surprising, well, maybe not so surprising at Stanford, there were a number of women um, that I met as freshmen who were studying all different types of engineering. And, and so it started in the back of my mind that hmm, this might be something interesting. And then uh, there were... I think the same way there are now, there were affinity groups. So there was a society of women engineers, and I joined that my junior year. It's how I got my first engineering job. Um, And I think that was very necessary now as it was then to help provide support networks. What's sad to say, Mike, is in the U.S., the number of women in engineering has actually gone backwards. I probably graduated at the peak of the percent of women in engineering, and my class was about 25%. Huh. And it's, it, you know, the US and some of the other Western um, countries, it's gone backwards. And interestingly enough, places like Russia, it's nearly 50 50 now. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, it's not biological, don't believe that. Um, but there's some sort of cultural nut we have to crack there. But by the time I got to graduate school, I was one of only two women studying engineering.
0: You know, I've seen you interact with rooms of men, uh, rooms with male en- of male engineers largely, and uh, you definitely have a. Um, you're very comfortable in those environments. Um, I'm I'm just connecting the dots here. Do you think that that your ability to function so effectively in these male spaces is this sort of farm girl ethic, or like completely? What, uh, and like you know, did your what, your relationship with your dad was he particularly like? you know, throwing you guys in the mud kind of thing? Like what, what is there some connection there or not? Or no?
1: You nailed it. Yeah. So um, I think my dad in his heart of hearts wanted boys and he got two girls and he's like, all right, what am I going to do with these two <laughs> girls? I'll, I know I'll make them boys. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up, I learned to fish, yeah. I learned to shoot. Um, you know, I, I never believed that boys were actually better than girls in math and science because in my school... The top 10 students were all girls, so it it just wasn't my reality. Um, In fact, until I probably got to my freshman year of college. Uh, And so I think a lot of that with, you know, my parents, my mom was a uh, business owner, so she ran her own company, uh, and both of them were very strong on women can do whatever they want. You know, but my, my dad just kind of allowed no quarter for you know, girliness, I would say. Um, And it definitely had an impact.
0: Yeah. Good for him and good for you. Uh, And now good for us. Um, All right, so what'd you do after school?
1: Well, I couldn't get a job at Bell Labs in Andover, which was where I had had my first engineering job um, because they were having a hiring freeze. So I went to work in management consulting. Mm. Um, So I worked for Bain & Company for about three years in San Francisco, transferred to Hong Kong, um, loved Asia, was a little tired of consulting, um, quit consulting, traveled around Asia for a couple of months by myself, oh. um, and then came back to Stanford for graduate school.
0: Right. What did you study?
1: I um, I ended up doing a master's in engineering and an MBA at the same time.
0: Right. Uh, Harvard's just launching a program to do that. Uh, you have not been able to do that at Harvard until uh, until now. It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty cool.
1: Yeah, MIT actually launched one of the first programs, yeah. um, and that was the Leaders for Manufacturing program, and I seriously considered that as well, but the, the structure of the program um, was really constrained, and you had a cohort of uh, only about 50 or 60 students, and I really wanted, I think partly because it took me five years to get through undergrad, I really wanted to be in the same cohort with my business school classmates, yeah. and I could do both degrees in two years, so I, I picked the Stanford program.
0: Now, you know, did you have a um, specific uh, career pivot in mind, having abandoned consulting? Like, did you, were you moving in towards something or were you just, you just, you know, it was the intersection of what you knew well and what you wanted to know?
1: Um, I had decided I was going to save American manufacturing. Right. So, um, you know, if you remember back at that MAGA, time, you
0: had the first MAGA I, hat, <laughs> I,
1: I heard <laughs> it was crimson, not red. Pink. Yeah. Pink. pink. Um, so, it, Japanese manufacturing was very, very respected. Toyota was taking over in automotive, yeah. um, and leveraging
0: Deming's work which, exactly, uh,
1: yeah. exactly. And so, I really felt that manufacturing needed to stay on these shores. Yeah, and it was so important to me that the program I did was a, a manufacturing s- systems engineering, sponsored by Alcoa and all of these traditional manufacturing companies in the U.S. And I went to work in a diesel engine manufacturer for my years between school, um, worked on fuel injectors for diesel engines, uh, and really uh, you know, had a passion around building things.
0: Yeah. Was it fun?
1: It was fantastic. Uh, C- Cummins is an amazing company. You know, they're one of the most kind of ethical companies that I've, I've worked for, just a, a phenomenal leadership team. The challenge is when you're in your late 20s and you're working in central Indiana, pretty much everybody got married at 22. Sure. So from a lifestyle perspective, it wasn't the right place to be, but it, it's a fantastic company. You know, working on huge diesel engines is beyond fun. Uh, and so it was a great experience.
0: Right. Where'd you go to from there?
1: I went to Sun. So if you're in California and you want to stay in California, and at the time, if you wanted to build things, you built computers. Yeah. So I was a printed circuit board assembly engineer in, uh, you know, working in a manufacturing site that still boor- built printed circuit boards in the middle of Silicon Valley in 1997.
0: What was that culture like?
1: Oh, it was uh, challenging. You know, my first, I remember about my first month, well, it was crazy. So I went through three bosses before I even got to my job. Then I was told that my job was being restructured and it was going away and it would be something different, but not to worry. And so, um, you know, within three months of the job, we're building boards and we run out of labels. And I'm like, I'm so fired. How can I run out of labels? So I expected to come in the next day and yeah. lose my job because, you know, how could you, how could you be in charge of production and run out of labels? And then I realized that manufacturing is all about just like minimizing chaos damage um, because it is really chaotic and um, things go wrong all the time. So you just have to get rapid recovery. Um, but it, you know, it, it was interesting to see things like HP had a fuel, a, a basically a, uh, an injection molding shop on Page Mill Road when I started working there. And there was a, a screw manufacturer that I went to that was in the Bay Area, and all of that's gone. You know, The first 10 years of my career were all about moving everything from the U.S. to Asia. And thankfully, in the last part of my career, I got to bring a few things back Um, But it really was sobering to to see how difficult it was for the U.S. to compete.
0: Trying to beat back the chaos is good preparation for a career as an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about that transition, you know, specifically for... Like engineers out there who are interested in moving in the direction of some kind of a management or leadership role, how did you get off the uh, kind of factory floor and 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 into more of a um, you know uh, an entrepreneurial place?
1: Well, I think the the best thing I did was blend engineering and business um, because out of being the process control engineer, I actually took over all of the commercial responsibility for that um, that commodity uh, and. Any engineer is going to be handy with numbers. So I get a spreadsheet of all our costs. And the first thing I do is start investigating it. And I figured out that our supplier had overcharged us a million dollars for the last three months. Yeah. Um, So that got everybody's attention. Sure. Uh, And um, rapidly, uh, within the next probably 18 months, I ended up in charge of all of the supplier management for the product lines. Uh, and so I think that ability to, to be able to balance what it takes technically and understand the business ramifications of those decisions and how to optimize things for the PL and is really important. Mm-hmm. And, and the best business leaders I've worked with um, actually have enough knowledge of both to be able to make good judgments. Uh, the other things I would say that would be important if you're an engineer and you want to move up is understanding how to communicate your ideas. A lot of engineers um, think that technology sells itself. And one of the most important things is actually getting other people to adopt your ideas. So understanding how to build a case for your technology, how to communicate it and build support in the organization to get it taken forward is really critical.
0: Right. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about, um, uh, you know, more recently and... and uh, the work that you did on the West Coast before you know we were able to pull you out of there.
1: So in my last role at Oracle, I, I came into Oracle through the Sun Microsystems acquisition. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know I think Oracle is a bit marmite. Either you figure out that you like it and you can work with it, or it just doesn't work for you at all. And so people self-select, I would say, within the first few months of being there, if you come in as an yeah. acquisition. And for me, um, Oracle had exactly what I felt Sun needed. It had the financial backing to really make the right investments to move forward, and it had the operational discipline to stop the bleeding, because Sun was just losing a lot of money. Um, So I spent four years uh, at Oracle uh, helping to integrate Sun, and then uh, running the new product introduction and all of the sustaining operations engineering. And then about, um, about year four, Oracle acquired Techlec and Acme into one of their global business units. And it was another hardware software product, and there just weren't that many people at Oracle who understood both sides of that world. And they were struggling a bit with how to you know how to really get the best of both worlds and maximize this investment. So they asked me to come join the CGBU and really help manage the acquisition integration. So I moved over there, and uh, you know, met the team here on the East Coast with, with ACME, worked with the team in Morrisville that was doing the TechElect group, um, and the, the team back in San Jose that was the, the original nucleus of uh, CGBU, and really helped um, develop the roadmap, figure out how we were going to put the teams and the technology together, what the portfolio should look like, um, and how we would fill out the, the rest of the vision of what we wanted to create. Um, but I think we got to a much better place of figuring out how to bring the best of the three groups together. But it's definitely a challenge when you take three equally sized organizations and try to meld them into you know, one single uniform culture and roadmap.
0: Yeah, that's a recipe for a shit show, I think, is the technical term. Um, so, uh, you know, an acquisition is supposed to be a situation where one plus one equals three, right? That's what makes the, that's why people go through the hardship of them um, you know, Andy Patrick, that whole team really credits you personally uh, to uh, a large extent with uh, the reason that that worked. How do you make an acquisition work um, as the acquiring entity? Like, wh- what what did you really focus on in terms of of the integration of such a large and a, you know that that was you know Acme Packet was a public company at mm-hmm. that time. It had its own norms. It had a well established you know. How did you bring them into the fold in a way that that um, that, uh, you know, that led to, you know, a value-adding rather than a value-destroying equation?
1: You know, Mike, it really starts with the people. Yeah. Um, I spend time with all of the teams. You, you can't do an integration by remote control from across the country. Uh, so, uh, you know, I got on a plane. I got out here. Uh, Andy, Andy had left at that point, but Patrick uh, and, you know, were still in the organization. And I just sat down with the team, and tried to understand what was working, what wasn't working, and most importantly, what they needed. Um, And so, you know, what was important to the customers? What made the product successful? Uh, What were the customers looking for? And did the same thing with the TechElect team. And what came out was um, that there were actually some policies at Oracle that needed to change. Now, taking on Oracle policies is, uh, you know, seriously tilting at windmills. But because of the four years that I'd spent you know, working through that, I actually had the right relationships back yeah. on the corporate side and enough credibility to be able to, to explain why it was necessary to make those changes. And you know, like any business, who you know helps you get things done, particularly at large companies. Um, and so for the sales team, a lot of what you hear is no. And I was the person who could help them figure out how to get to yes for a big deal with Verizon or an important change for another customer. And so that was, uh, you know, that was part of what made it work. And, and I think I was also a neutral third party in it because I wasn't ex I wasn't ex Portal, and I wasn't ex Acme. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had no personal stake other than making the best roadmap and investment decisions we could. And I think people really respected that. And I was able to help navigate some of those boundaries better.
0: Yeah. But the, but sounds like the posture was one of enabler rather than one of enforcer.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um,
0: and it was about, uh, you, know, um, you know, those relationships you describe. I think people chronically underestimate um, the importance of power, right? Which is, uh, you know, accrued by individuals. And it in contrasts with authority which is, you know, conferred on people by by organizations, right? And so to have someone in a position of power willing to reach out into a new acquired entity, identify key relationships and then enable those people. Uh, I mean it sounds like that's really the that was really the formula.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I, I would say in my last role, uh, you know, a woman that I worked with closely talked about three different kinds of power. There's your positional power, there's technical or ex- power that comes from expertise often, right. but there's really the personal power, and that's all about, you know, who are you when you're with somebody? And, you know, I know you talk a lot about being an authentic leader and your authentic self, and, you know, you can't lead if people don't follow.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, all right, so these guys call you when they're putting the band back together to build a new company, and... Um, um, You know, tell me a little bit about how that went down.
1: (laughs) Well, I was living in London at the time. Yeah. And um, I was actually looking at buying a place in London because we were really enjoying London.
0: Sure. What's not to enjoy?
1: Exactly. Um, And we thought, well, we'll stay here for a couple more years and and, uh, really commit. And I get a call from Patrick uh, who said, you know, we think the company's at the point where we really need someone like you. And I said, "Well, you know, that's interesting, Patrick. Um, you know, but how serious are you? Because I'm putting offers on real estate here. So if this is just a like, hey, Sue, what are you doing? This is kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, that's one thing. But if you're really serious, then you know, let's get together and talk." And uh, Patrick said, "No, you know, we're we're really serious." And so I I actually had the flight from hell. And I had not, uh, I had met Andy only briefly. But literally, I I flew from a board meeting in South Africa to Boston to have dinner with Andy. So I was up for like, I don't know, 32 hours straight (laughs) (laughs) from flights to job interviews. Um, And we had a great conversation over dinner. And it, it just was so easy, Mike. It was like, you know, I felt I could bring what they needed. You know, they really wanted to bring me on. I, of course, knew some but not all of the team. And so it just felt like the right fit at the right time with the right people.
0: That's awesome. Well, you've really completed that team. And uh, uh, it's, um, it's been a pleasure to, to kind of watch you work. Um, for the benefit of those who don't know, uh, what does uh, 128 Technology do?
1: 128 technology makes your networks do what your business needs.
0: Wow.
1: Isn't that an amazing Uh, concept? That is
0: super catchy. I really like that.
1: I, I, you know, the guy who came up with that, he's just a rock star.
0: Must have been. Sounds very Italian. Um, and, um, uh, it, you know, what, what is that? What, what kind of problems are you solving for customers?
1: We solve three primary problems for customers, Mike. Um, the first one we characterize as strategic capabilities, like you're trying to do something new in your business, something that makes you more agile, something that saves you money, something that minimizes your risk. And the buzzword for a lot of people right now is software-defined wide area networking, or SD WAN. Right, right. So we we kind of bucket that with strategic capabilities. Um, we also have some really interesting capabilities in the cloud. So everybody's moving to the cloud. I think we, even as a small company, have 26 different clouds that we work with. And most companies have at least four or five. But how to work across these clouds is a problem that people can't solve, that we actually have technology that can help them. And then the third area is security. So every day, you know, you you hear uh, the Facebook data usage. You see the, you know, Target Data Breach Under Armour, you know, with their yeah, MyFitnessPal, you know, every day it's a headline, and, and companies use, lose billions of dollars of market cap because of this. And one of the areas of vulnerability really is the network itself, because the the security is painted on the perimeter, you know, with these firewalls, it's not really baked into how the network runs, and that's what we do. And so we solve customer problems in those three primary areas.
0: I've heard Andy say that the network is the unstated accomplice in every data breach that ever happened.
1: And and I think uh, undoubtedly it is. And people are increasingly coming to the realization that their current security models just are not going to uh, protect them against these really sophisticated cyber criminals.
0: So when this adventure ends, are you are you hightailing it back to London? <laughs>
1: No, we'll see. Yeah. But, you know, I'm enjoying being in Boston. My sister's right over there in Copley Place. So, uh, but, uh, you know, we, we loved London. Uh, you know, I certainly can't, can't complain about the weather in San Francisco too much. Uh, but we're, we're enjoying getting to know Boston and, and really digging in here.
0: Okay, Boston, all the better for Sue's presence here. I must say I enjoyed the observation that uh, Boston today is a lot like what Silicon Valley was Uh, when silicon valley was great be sure not to miss out on my next conversation with a major luminary of the boston startup community be sure and subscribe to how hard can it be uh write us up tell your friends spread the word Um, thanks for sticking around and i will see you next time